Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.53 a.m. on the 4th of March, 2020. This is episode 209 of Bitcoin, and let's see what kind of trouble I can get in today. I'm really, really sorry, guys, that I was unable to produce a show for you guys uh, yesterday. The doctor's office, uh, shall we say, ran long, like real long. And no, Pablo, I'm not going to get into a rant on the United States medical facilities, man. Although I should, because I will say this about yesterday. uh, And everybody's experienced this. Yeah, I took my wife to a 1045 appointment where we proceeded to wait for an hour in the waiting room. (laughs) How come she couldn't come in at 1145, she asks. Well, okay, the way that works, just so if anybody's... If anybody wants to know why the hell it is that this is happening, like why did they tell me to come in here and I, I'm sitting out here in chairs? Uh, well, it's because they pack them and they stack them. All right? This is because of Medicare, Medicaid, uh, insurance. They want to get as many people in there as they possibly can. Some people don't have really any problems. It's not something that can't be either fixed or looked at in like five minutes and then boom, you know, I don't know how much money doctors get for doing various things. So let's just say like, boom, a hundred bucks just falls out of the sky, which is probably not what happens. As people come in and they have something that they actually have a problem with and it takes more time, the doctor starts getting slow in in what's been stacked up. And so by the time you get to like 11.45, 10.45, what what they were kind of hoping would take, I don't know, an hour and a half or two hours to clear uh, has only, basically what they were expecting to clear in two hours is going to take five. And even though they always do this and they should probably know better, it's never going to get any better. So if you want my advice on what to do, If you don't want to experience that crap anymore, do this one simple thing. If you are going to, if you know you're going to go to a doctor's appointment because they're saying, hey, we'll see you back here in two weeks to take a look at, I don't know, your ankle, whatever it is. And then you go up and and you're scheduling the new appointment. Do your level best to get it at eight o'clock in the morning. I know, blow, I know, man, it, it blows hard. To get up that, to, I mean, like it, all this stuff, I'm not dismissing all the shit that you got to do in the morning. Okay. I promise I got kids. I know they got to get dressed. They got to get fed. They got to, you know, brush their hair, brush their teeth. They, you know, got to get all their stuff ready. You got to get ready. You've got work. I understand that. However, the fact remains 
the earlier that you can get into the doctor's office, the less likely it's going to be that you sit in chairs on your ass for an hour and a half to two hours. The later in the day, like if they say, hey, we've got a three o'clock opening, you run, do not walk away from that appointment because you will miss everything that you have to do in the afternoon. I guarantee it. Okay. So there was a little bit of a rant, but I'm hoping it was more instructive than it was a rant. All right. First up in community, actually only thing up in community news is, well, there may be a couple things. Let's see if I remember the other one, but I don't have it in my morning roundup list on Twitter here. So I, it's, it's one of those things. I, I, I forgot to put it in, even though I shouldn't have. So I'll see if I can remember. But Bitcoin Words, which is at underscore Bitcoin Words, has released their February 2020 journal. It is now live. It, it clocks in, uh, supposedly, depending on, I don't know how the algorithms on read time work, but this apparently is clocking in at 201 minutes with 21 entries. Ooh, nice, 21 entries. Oh, uh, hey, Bitcoin words. That should be your cutoff limit. Just saying, it should only be ever, like no more than 21 ever. That way you've got stuff for the next, the, the, the next issue and you honor the holy number of 21. Anyway, if you don't know what Bitcoin Words is, they basically pick up all the really cool stuff that's been written in the last month, maybe a couple of other things, um, and they compile it all together for you in a nice readable form, all in one place, and that place is bitcoinwords.github.io. Again, you can go get all their stuff and read it for free. It's a free service that is being offered, so don't, you know, don't dismiss it. It's uh, at Bitcoin Words, R-O, I'm sorry, R, good God. Oh, how early is it? It's 8.58 Central Standard Time. Jesus, <laughs> help me. Bitcoin Words, W-O-R-D-S dot GitHub dot I-O. Okay, so that's community announcement number one. And lo and behold, I've remembered. Well, what was I going to say? Uh... Uh, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, that's what I, I was just waiting to break your ass on that one. Okay, let's get into the morning roundup one. Let's start right here with HTC reveals the Exodus 5G hub, a secure router that can run a Bitcoin node. This is written by Jeremy Horowitz sometime this morning, uh, published on VentureBeat.com. Why am I reading vi- the VentureBeat uh, article for this? Because I'm not going to read the story that dropped this morning from a publication, uh, a certain publication from a certain gentleman named M. Dudas. I refuse to read anything from that publication. Uh, I, I, I don't know what's going on with that guy, but the last time that he delivered a daily train wreck, I was sort of like 100% done uh, with the things that he says. I don't like the fact that most of his articles are put behind a paywall. I mean, dude, get it, get advertisers. If you're that hard up for cash, get advertisers, because if you supposedly have all this great content, then you should let people read that content without forcing them 
into a situation where they have a paywall and from what I understand are unable to pay with Bitcoin or Lightning. I'm not sure if I'm wrong about that, then I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry for not reading anything from Mike Dudas's publication because you know what? F those guys. So here we are over at VentureBeat.com. HTC created one of the first 5G hotspots with the original HTC 5G hub, a portable router that looked and worked more like a thick smartphone down to its touchscreen, full Android 9 operating system, and 4G, 5G backed Wi-Fi services all running on Qualcomm's Snapdragon 855 chipset. Woohoo! Today, HTC is announcing the Exodus 5G Hub, a crypto-focused model that will leverage Zion software to deliver a secure and private environment for blockchain and encryption fans. Yay, I'm a fan, bro! If you've been following the 5G scene, you may note that the Exodus 5G Hub is essentially the same piece of hardware HTC previously released. It's packing a late 2018, early 2019 Snapdragon 855 chip and an older X50 5G modem, which means that while it's competent, you won't get the fastest possible 5G connections available. Currently, the Exodus 5G Hub is planned in 2.5 gigahertz US Sprint and 3.5 gigahertz in Australia, but HTC says it could become available for other 5G frequencies if carriers with high or low band 5G towers express interest. Because of the older modem, the Exodus 5G hub tops out at support for up to 2.63 gigabits per second download and 287 megabits per second uploads shared across up to 20 different devices connected over Wi-Fi 5 or 60 gigahertz 802.11 AD and the newer Wi-Fi 6. But what made the 5G hub interesting and Exodus 5G hub arguably more compelling is its ability to use a bunch of its own cellular bandwidth to run Android apps on the 5 inch 1280 by 720 screen. Users will have full access to HTC Zion Vault, which holds BTC, Oh God, ETA, I keep forgetting about this, ETH, BNB, LTC, XLM, and other ERC scam coin and ERC other type of scam coin tokens supports user-owned Zion keys and can run a full Bitcoin node. It's the corn, bro. They put the corn in there. It's the full Bitcoin node directly from the Exodus 5G hub. HTC says it will use a VPN ad blocking app incognito to protect both the hub and all connected devices, as well as supporting end-to-end encrypted email through ProtonMail. Jeez, I'm liking this a lot. Every word I read here, this is awesome. Open source web browsing through the Brave browser. Dude, HTC is becoming a Bitcoin company. I love it. The Exodus 5G hub is planned for release in the second quarter of 2020, at which point pricing and partners for both crypto and cellular services will be announced. Sprint currently sells the standard 5G hub for 600 bucks outright or 300 bucks when purchased with a monthly service plan delivering download speeds that peak at 700 megabits per second in some markets, but more typically range from 125 to 200 megabits per second. So HTC dumping a full Bitcoin node and a whole bunch of other goodies into uh, directly into a portable router. Man, dude, future's looking pretty bright. That's all I got to say. Uh, also for the future, we look to the past. Early adopters called Bitcoin the future of money. 
nine years ago, and it's up 10,000x since. This is Joseph Young writing for CryptoSlate.com, most likely in response to all the people that are saying that early adopters are, they just got lucky. No, they didn't. They did research. Bitcoin is now worth $161 billion with strong infrastructure established by the world's largest financial institutions and conglomerates in the likes of Fidelity, CME, and Square. Nine years ago, the market capitalization of BTC was valued at less than $21 million. The Bitcoin market tends to undergo a cycle of the bear market accumulation build phase bull market every two to three years. Due to its nature as an emerging asset, both bear and bull markets tr- market trends often last longer than the expectations of investors. During a bear market, a long-lasting correction typically comes to an end when market sentiment switches to the extreme when the majority of investors begin to wear off and the market shakes off weak hands. In crypto, investors that hold Bitcoin through bear and bull cycles with a long-term investment thesis are called hodlers. After every major bull cycle, hodlers are frequently described as lucky investors that happened to purchase BTC at a low price. But a discussion about BTC in 2009 on a well-known forum shows the firm long-term belief in Bitcoin by hodlers. On a thread entitled, Bitcoin, the Global Money, opened on February the 22nd, 2011, one investor said, quote, I think Bitcoin will succeed as even if it's only traded by a slowly growing population of Klingon-speaking Bitcoin geeks, it'll still, by definition of what it is, to be an effective way of storing and transporting wealth, end quote. The investor noted that while BTC may start out as a new currency for a small group of users, over time, it will eventually serve more people, quote. So at some point, Bitcoin will be briskly traded all over the world. Okay, they already are, but even more briskly. First, among even more Klingon speakers, but then among even more people just wanting to store and transport value, quote, the investor explained. Uh, at uh, Sorry, as time passed, more companies have started to get involved in BTC and the crypto industry in general, <laughs> HTC. Fidelity, CME, and Square are running platforms that facilitate BTC trades and purchases. Samsung is running a Bitcoin mining venture, and some of the biggest banks in the world are closely studying the technology behind BTC. Oh, God. (laughs) Blockchain, man, blockchain. For the early stage believers in BTC and the technology behind it, which was not easy, it paid off well. Since 2011, the Bitcoin price has increased from $1 to $20,000 at its peak. At the current price of 8,857, it's up 800 and sorry, 8,857 times for early investors. Highly regarded executives and investors in the crypto industry, like Zappo CEO Winston Cesaris, believes the Bitcoin price will eventually be worth $1 million in 10 years' time. Cesaris explained that as the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin increases in the long run, its fixed supply would make BTC far more valuable. He said, quote, I have noticed over time that the price of Bitcoin fluctuates around $7,000 times how, or multiplied by how many people own Bitcoin. That's weird. So if that constant maintains, and if 3 billion people ever own Bitcoin, it would be worth $21 trillion or $7,000 multiplied by 3 billion users or $1 million per Bitcoin. Man, that would be 
that would be weird. Okay, that would just be weird. Not saying it wouldn't be good, and I'm not saying it won't happen, but think about it. Think about if you woke up tomorrow and you had a whole Bitcoin and it was worth $21 million. Or rather, sorry, $1 million. And you had, or, or if you were lucky enough to be part of the 21 Club when the 21 Club was still a thing and, and woke up with $21 million. I mean, dude. I mean, you've think about just stop and think about that for a little bit longer, shall we? Yes, we shall. <laughs> um, most of the people that that I see in the space, or actually not most, I'm gonna all I can really say is that there's so many people that I know in this space that are really good people. I've seen some really messed up dudes and dudettes here as well. But scammers are always going to get their asses handed to them at one point or another. Uh, especially if you're running a scam coin and you've got a mailing address. If you're not packed up and, and ready to bail for the hills like as of this afternoon, then you're in. You're going to get your ass handed to you at one point or another. It is a sooner or later deal, an if, or rather a when, not if, and a how bad it's going to be when it actually does happen rather than anything else. Uh, but... For Bitcoin, this is not the case because there is no leader and there is no mailing address and there is no phone number to call. You can't call up customer support, which sucks in some ways. It, it, like, you know, like if you lose your keys or whatever, you're, you're toast. And that goes for me too. If I lose my keys, I'm toast. And it could happen. You know, sometimes I get on boats. Pardon the pun. Um but these people that I do know of that are really good, really good Joes, I can't imagine what that they what they would do with twenty one million dollars if they're part of the twenty one million, you know, twenty one the twenty one club, right? I don't think that they would go give it to charity. I think they'd start building businesses. I I think that they would invest in other technologies, and we we've already seen that kind of happen. Except that the people that most of the VCs that got rich from Bitcoin are now kind of mostly scammers and that's sad, but there's a lot of people that will never let go of the idea. Will never let go of the idea. No matter how much money is involved, they'll never let go of the idea. And it will be those people that I will be looking at and following because I want to follow people that that understand that having an ethical and moral compass means that it's going to kind of suck for life. So that means that you're in life for something other than making it easy. Because if you're in life to just make it easy, well, I'm not really interested in in you. And that's okay. You can go out and do whatever you want. But it's the guys that are like, you know, I got all this money now and I can go do things. And they're not the people that take the cruise and jet set to Paris and basically burn their money at a rate that's like ridiculous because they're taking vacations and going to like concert after concert, 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 because that they never could before. And I get that. I do. But geez, could you imagine paying 300 bucks for Eagles tickets? Even if I had the money, actually I do have the money. You know why I'm not going to go see the Eagles for 300 bucks? Because it's a ripoff. That's why. Anyway, so uh, sorry for, for that particular aside, but we, uh, thank you, Joseph Young for reminding us that it's not being lucky. It's about studying and researching and asking yourself the deep, dark, hard questions of what really 
is this thing? And what really is the comparison to the money systems that we have today? And really taking a deep dive into those particular things. And when you come out, when you come up for air, you generally speaking, you're a different person. It, it just happens. Uh, it probably happened to Tim Draper because he wants Bitcoin to become the national currency of the United States. Go Tim! This was done by Jeff Fox yesterday for CoinSpeaker. Uh, Tim Draper wants the U.S. to become a Bitcoin nation with free 5G, no borders for honest workers, and universal minimum income set in cryptocurrency. However, he is not going to participate in the next elections. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting lead-in paragraph, but whatever. Um, the, the, Tim Draper is a famous venture capitalist. And cryptocurrency market whale. He was constantly buying large portions of Bitcoin since 2014, claiming that the future will not be centralized. Now he claims that the United States deserves significant monetary changes. Well, Tim, if the United States gets significant monetary changes, the rest of the world come along for the ride. Unless we wait on our ass for too long and the United States dollar as a de facto world reserve currency ain't the world reserve currency anymore. It would be better for the world if the United States acted now rather than later, but that's just me. Let's continue. Back in the days, the United States government was selling 25,000 Bitcoins from the closed Silk Road wallets. Draper bought all of the stash, all of it. He also says that Ross Ulbricht, the founder of the first truly free marketplace, must receive parole. No, that dude needs a full fucking pardon. I'm sorry, but he talk about railroads, man. It was Danny Nelson, Coindesk reporter, who asked Draper about his possible presidency. Investor claimed that he will implement 5G internet everywhere together <clears throat> with a substantial cryptocurrency infrastructure. The Draper plan seems fantastic, yet full of common reason. Quote, I would drive decentralization, make Bitcoin a national currency, break California into six states, release Ross Ulbricht, yes, have people use Aragon for trial by jury, make any increases in government worker salaries tied to GDP growth rather than CPI, eliminate the 33 and 40 acts that keep the poor poor and the rich rich. Draper also thinks that before the government starts with any investigations in the blockchain startup, the startup must gather at least 100 customer lawsuits. This is weird. Quote, I would make regulators wait until there were over 100 customer lawsuits or five years before they start regulating a startup. I would start research and experimenting with an earth umbrella outside the atmosphere to combat global a maglev launcher for rockets, better for the environment, uses less energy, put 5G everywhere, and encourage the use of better public transport via companies like Skytran and Hyperloop, end quote. Draper thinks that it's time to offer olive branches to all the United States trading partners across the planet. He claims that America does not need the borders because talented developers must flow in the country and increase in strength, quote. Over time, I would drop the borders for anyone who will come and is willing to work without any entitlements, minimum wage, or benefits that a citizen would get until they earn citizenship. Until they earn citizenship? Jesus, Tim, isn't that the way it actually is right now? I mean, that's the way that I thought it used to work. You would come, you weren't a citizen, 
you had to study for the citizenship test. While you were doing that, you had to work. You had to be in the United States for like, I don't know, two years or something like that before you could even take the test. Not that the test itself is, is, is the matter. But you would work and you would be a citizen. And most of the people that did it that way, when they got their green card, they fell down and freaking cried because of all the work that they had put in to attain that one thing. To attain that one thing, they did so much work and they went through so much. It was almost as if the entire American experience was just balled up for them inside of two years. And when they finally caught that son of a bitch, they were like the happiest people on the face of the planet. And I have zero problem with that. But that's the way that Tim Draper is describing the way it used to work. So he should say we should go back to the way that we that we used to do it. Anyway, Timothy also seems to be against setting the yearly budgets according to the sole to solely the government workers' wishes and estimations. Quote, I would tie the amount of government could spend to whatever they raised the year before, where Congress would vote on shares of the budget rather than committing specific dollar amounts. Draper also wants to give away small sums of Bitcoin to ordinary people to foster crypto adoption and awareness. He claims that Bitcoin is the basis for the universal basic income system. He may be right. I mean, every time I stumble across that sentence, man, it just, it just stops me dead in my tracks, but whatever it is needed or indeed a topic of many discussions among progressive Westerners, those including comedians, libertarian cypherpunks, free market fans, internet businessmen, and more. Billionaire Mike Bloomberg recently stated that cryptocurrencies are a notable technology worth separate regulation guidelines. This may be the reason behind the recent change of attitude from the government officials. Previously, they have seen the crypto field as a problem. Now, when executed properly, the technology may switch fast to becoming the mainstream solution to the dollar overprinting and other economic troubles. Worth noting that Tim Draper won't be placing himself as the next presidential candidate. However, Andrew Yang was going to try and win the elections with his promise to set the UBI to $1,000 per month, but he withdrew from the elections, as we all know. So thank you, Jeff Fox. Thank you, Coin Speaker. Even though I haven't asked your permission, I know, I get it. I'm terrible that way. Guy Swan's got his ducks in a row, but I figure I'd rather ask permission or good God. Uh, see, it's, it's hey guys, it's not 10 o'clock AM. Okay. I've only had two cups of coffee, dude. Give me a break. I would rather ask forgiveness than permission. Besides any, most of these guys know that you got, if you've got stuff to get out there, you need to get it out there. In any way, shape, or form, we are a young industry. All of us are marketing Bitcoin, but also as important, we're all marketing each other. All right, that's I I I think there's a small handful of people that I know that get it, and they get it hardcore. They get it. We're in a. I mean, we're not fighting each other. We have bigger fish to fry, so we'll, we market each other. We retweet each other's stuff. We talk about each other on our podcast or in our things or whatever it is that we've, whatever our chosen avenue for outlet is, because we're all really what we're in marketing each other. What we're really doing is marketing Bitcoin ourselves. Just come along for the ride. Massive exchanges have long been a major point of centralization within the crypto industry. Big exchanges conduct a hostile takeover of Steam blockchain following the Tron acquisition. This is Cole Peterson. Going to give us the skinny 
on what's going on with this whole steam debacle. So if you've been living under a rock, then you haven't seen the fact that steam is a giant dumpster fire of a three ring circus shit show. (laughs) And if you don't know that, buckle up buckaroos because we're going on a little ride Again, Cole Peterson writing for CryptoSlate.com sometime what? Oh, this is March the 2nd. So, massive exchanges have long been a major point of centralization within the crypto industry, as we all have a problem with. With this being further confirmed by recent actions reportedly taken by some major exchanges to pose a hostile takeover of the Steam blockchain using stakeholders deposited tokens. Stop, let's stop right there because everything you need to know about why this has become the dumpster fire that it is, is in this first sentence. This is all one sentence, by the way, which is bad form, but whatever. Cole, my wife teaches technical communication. She'll, she'll, she'll definitely like train the ass up on how to do this stuff. Although I like Cole, he is a good writer, but Dude, if you really want to learn how to write, you need to get a hold of my wife. All right, Cole? So let's let's do that. Um, let's take this last part of this uh, sentence here. Recent actions reportedly taken by some major exchanges to pose a hostile takeover of the Steam blockchain using stakeholders' deposited tokens. That means that the hostile takeover, the people that are performing the hostile takeover are using my deposited tokens to take over Steam. My deposited tokens, which are on Steam, have been used to take over Steam. Why do I say that I have Steam tokens? Because I do. It's one of the shit coins that I have when I was very excited about all this stuff when I first got in. I got a Steam account. I haven't posted that thing in God knows how long. I don't even know what my balance is. Again, it's sort of like I don't know what my balance is of BAT and I use the Brave browser because I don't care. It doesn't mean I've got XLM on Keybase. I don't care. I happen to actually see the balance today. So I know that it's like, I don't know, 61 bucks worth of, of XLM or something like that, which I'll probably donate to Tor or something like that. I don't know. I'm just like, I'm I'm so in the whatever stage behind all these tokens that it's not even funny. But the point is, is that since I do have an account on Steam and I have tokens in that account, those tokens were used to hostile takeover the Steam chain. My own shit. I didn't give them permission. Now, why was that possible? Not your keys, not your coins. And this is what decentralized proof of stake will get you. This is why proof of work is Bitcoin's killer application. I tweeted that last night. And for more reasons than just this, that's for damn sure. You know, I'll get into that, not today, but I'm, I'll write something or, or something and explain why it's the killer app. But I start with the premise that it does double duty. It secures the blockchain and it allows for the input and conversion of things that we would normally have just laying around and messing shit up. Okay. So let's continue. This comes close on the heels of Tron's recent acquisition of Steemit 
sparking an inquiry into whether or not one can accurately deem the blockchain as being centralized due to this governance flaw and flaw it is. As previously reported by Crypto Slate, the Justin Sun-led blockchain company Tron recently conducted an acquisition of the blockchain platform Steemit, uh, Steemit, a popular content sharing platform that utilizes cryptocurrency to reward users in sh- for sharing their content. The acquisition was na- aimed at bringing the dApps that have been built on the Steam blockchain underneath Tron's umbrella, with Justin Sun announcing an announcement of announcement of multiple different initiatives aimed at building TRX into the Steam ecosystem in a recent open letter to the blockchain's community, quote, we have so much work to do to make steam.com the power that it really can be. And there are many ways we can get there from bridging TRX, TRC10s, and TRC20s into communities to marketing and growing steamit.com users. I'm for my life. You should run for your life. You do, Dude, run, do not walk away from this kind of crap. It now appears that the latest developments in the Steam saga is that some major exchanges have essentially hijacked Steam's delegated proof-of-stake consensus using depositors' tokens. Oh, God. Earlier today, news began spreading regarding some major exchanges using depositors' tokens to cast votes on Steam's DPoS blockchain essentially taking over the blockchain using their clients' tokens in what one user describes as a hostile takeover. Vitalik Buterin, the Ethereum co-founder, spoke about this in a recent tweet, noting that this may be the first clear instance of a de facto bribe attack on coin voting. Quote, apparently Steam DPoS got taken over by big exchanges voting with depositors' funds. Can anyone confirm? Yada, 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 he goes on. It doesn't really matter because he's... He, Vitalik at this point represents, he, he, okay, Vitalik is looking at this thing and he's going, oh my God, look what's happened. Yet he presides over the largest honeypot that can actually go the same way if they ever go to proof of stake, whether delegated, whether federated, whatever, whatever freaking word you want to put in there. Proof of stake is going to get you the same shit that it's getting steam. This is why you don't do POS. You do proof of work. If you want security and you don't want to dick around with a whole bunch of exchanges who decided to just go, you know what? I think we'll just take the shit over. Why? (laughs) Because we've got their coins, bro. This is what happens. Bob Lucas, a well-known analyst and market commentator, chimed in regarding the topic, noting that individuals who hold their tokens on centralized exchanges are knowingly sacrificing their rights to vote on the blockchain. Uh, And I just accidentally hit a a hyperlink. Hold on while everything resolves back to normal. Oh, God, stop it. Quote, the depositor may have a balance at the exchange, but do not have rights on that blockchain. They exchange that right for a paper guarantee, all for the purpose of speculation. If they had cared about the stake, they would have demanded that that within their paper exchange. 
end quote. Investors who are passively engaged in the development of the blockchain may not be too upset by exchanges hijacking their votes, but it does elucidate that exchanges still remain a singular point of centralization with the markets that DPoS blockchains need to guard against. Okay, that's the end of the article, but I remember what I said. I have tokens on this on, on this thing. I am a security hole for Steam because I don't give a shit anymore. Think about that. I have to care. I have to care. That's part of the security that we never talk about. I have to care about Steam. As a holder of Steamit or whatever they call I can't even remember the name of the token because I don't give a shit. I, I, if, if I had a give a shit meter that went into the negative, I would so, I'd have a whole bank of those on my wall that I could look at while I'm doing this podcast so that every time I come across some shit coin, I'd see all the meters just peg over to the left and to bury themselves, bury themselves into negative give a shit. I, because I have to care and I don't, I become, I I switch from being an asset to the chain to being a liability for the chain. You cannot make this shit up. This is one of the unspoken things that happens with proof of stake. You have to care. And what sucks is that you might have cared. You might've cared. You might very well have cared. And then all of a sudden you didn't just like me. That's a security hole. Be aware of getting into things that are going to offer you those security holes. Why crypto should care about Justin Sun's steam drama. Now this is just extending the story a little bit here. This is a uh, coin desk and won't read too much of it because it's pretty much going to like cover some of the same things, but it's going to have a different take because this is Brady Dale writing for coin desk sometime. Oh my God, cat. My cat has just decided to go crazy and is running all over the place. This is also March the 2nd. On the Steemit blog, which is newly owned by Sun, a post announced the new regime. Notice, notice the language usage here, people. Everybody, even Coindesk gets it. Quote, For the next four to six weeks, the Steemit team will be using the voting rights to resume the order of the community while having an open channel for meeting community members and witnesses. End quote. However, as of this writing, users are telling us of app ins, uh, sorry, instability and users on Steemit are signaling outright revolt. This is an archived version of the original post because Steemit has been unstable. An archived version, when I said that word, that's actually a hyperlink. I'm not going to go there. Uh, I did, I, I've already read it and I know what they're talking about with, uh, because Steemit has been unstable. I read the, the Justin Sun uh uh, blog post. And then I read another blog post and I was going to read those outright on, on yesterday's show, which is now today's show because, well, we already went through that. Um, and when I did the, when I made my links to it and then I tested those links out within five minutes, I had been able to read it to going to not being able, not being able to even load steam or, or steam it. That's what you're into at this point. It's completely unstable. The entire platform has been built on Jello is what's going on here. So continuing in a delegated proof of stake system such as Steam, this Orwellian update is made only is only made possible by enough of the network's native currency, Steam being thrown behind a new set of blockchain validators. In short, 
Exchanges have staked Steam they controlled seemingly from user accounts, my Steam, okay, to let you know, to vote, quote, is in quotes, for new leadership. The implications reach much farther than just Steam or Tron, underlying the fundamental message of the not your keys, not your crypto mantra. When users hold large amounts of their assets on exchanges, it gives those firms potentially decisive power over ostensibly decentralized networks, particularly when governance authorities are tied to currency holdings. So the turmoil began on February the 14th when it was announced that Sun, the controversial founder of the Tron blockchain, had acquired Steam at a blogging site that owns a very large quantity of the Steam cryptocurrency. In response, Steam community leaders, the validators of the blockchain, initiated a soft fork on February the 23rd that censored the stake of tokens held by Steemit usually referred to in the community as the Ninja Mind Stake, as Coindesk previously reported. Quote, it's like the rich guys getting together and saying, let's show them who's the real boss. Roland Lamparty, a pseudonymous Dutch citizen who runs a Steam Witness and some major applications told Coindesk over a WhatsApp call. Leaders or validators on Steam are called witnesses serving similar roles to Bitcoin's miners. All 20 of the new witnesses now leading the chain are accounts created in February of 2020. February, that's last month. And all the validators and witnesses or are, are whatever are different. <sighs> Tron, Steemit, and Huobi or who buy, whatever, have not replied to multiple requests for comments while Binance has not responded directly to Coindesk queries. An enigmatic tweet from its CEO, Jingpeng Zhao, addressed the issue, quote, I was made aware of this upgrade hard fork beforehand and approved it. Projects do this all the time and we are just in a supportive position, he wrote. Just messaged Justin Suntron, no response yet. Assume he will respond publicly soon, end quote. There has been no update. On the proposed town hall scheduled for March 6th, Steam value has been generally down since the acquisition trading at roughly 23 cents before the news and is now down around 17 cents, according to, to CoinMarketCap. But the letter posted to the Steemit blog describes how Steemit had previously used its stake to support the community's development and says Sun's Tron Foundation intends to use part of the Steemit stake for such executions. It then writes that the witness's decision to solve fork created a need to reclaim the stake and vote in new witnesses to usher in new policies for a healthier ecosystem and community. I'm for my life. Also adding that the move may be deemed illegal and criminal. Oh, here we go. The post details several priorities for Steam going forward. It lists swaps between Steam and Tron, smart media tokens, Feature parody with Reddit, oh God, the, the short bus, and incentives for users to bring more people onto the platform. The new witnesses all now have overwhelming support in terms of Steam-denominated votes. However, the number of user accounts backing them is tiny, as can be seen in the voters' total column on that same page. And honestly, there's nothing else to read here. You already know everything that you need to know, not only about Steam, but about the dangers of proof of stake. No like I said, it does matter. Whatever word, you know, adjective you want to throw in front of proof of stake, it doesn't matter. It could be ironclad law of God proof of stake. And you know what? It's going to fail. Law of God be damned. 
No, because it's proof of stake. It doesn't matter your adjective. Decentralized, delegated, federated, screwed up, hookerish. It doesn't it it doesn't matter. It's the proof of stake that you have to worry about, not whether it's decentralized or delegated or whatever. Proof of stake has so many security holes in it that you really do need to run. Don't walk to your nearest exit because this whole circus should illustrate to you very clearly what is going to happen to all of the rest proof of stake stuff in the next starting now. And if we're lucky ending five years from now, but it will probably go on longer because the idiocy of the human species is tantamount to none. It's, it is, it is the presiding intelligence of the universe is human stupidity. So sparks fly on Twitter after top investor likens Ethereum to fiat currency. Woo! <laughs> oh my God. The crypto industry is full of catchphrases. Long Bitcoin, short the bankers and just total are just two of many that come to mind. This is Nick Chong writing for CryptoSlate.com on March the 3rd. One recent catchphrase that has gained popularity is Ethereum is money. No, it's not. Oft stated by the cryptocurrency's proponents who argue that ETH is or soon will satisfy the three textbook characteristics needed for something to be classified as money. One, unit of account. Two, store of value. Three, medium of exchange. And four, a big fat freaking lie. While this catchphrase has repeatedly spread amongst the Ethereum community as a legitimate idea, it's not. The sentiment is receiving some 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 pushback. Oh, oh my, really? No kidding. So apparently Pomp pissed some people off here. Anthony Pompliano, co-founder and partner at crypto fund manager Morgan Creek Digital Assets, in an extensive blog post slammed the meme ETH is money, calling that the logic used to make this argument fundamentally flawed and Anthony would be correct. Why you ask? Well, as Pompliano bluntly put it, ether is no different than a fiat currency. Woo. The triggering, let the triggering begin. Oh yeah. Referencing the assets, lack of fixed supply, inflationary supply schedule and centralized decision-making group. When it comes to monetary policy, what Pompliano explains are the hallmark of fiat money. Indeed, there is no cap on the amount of U.S. dollars in circulation, and the money printers are politicians and central bankers that aren't directly controlled by the public. As Pompliano explained further, quote, Ethereum structure is similar to our own current fiat monetary policies, where the decision makers can increase or decrease the production of new money coming into a system, end quote. To add a cherry on top of his argument, so to say, the industry investor continued that Ethereum has historically been more volatile than Bitcoin, eyeing the below chart from industry research site Delphi Digital. And then he gives a chart which indeed shows Bitcoin volatility less overall in the last couple of years than Ethereum. But that's just the last couple of years. It doesn't extend beyond that. So I I don't know. I don't have a, a, I'm not looking at, at a chart that goes all the way back for volatility. And honestly, I don't really care. But he's pissed a whole bunch of Ethereans off, right? And that this whole thing with Ethereum is money. If you're listening to this and you've just gotten into the game, that was a narrative change by the Ethereans 
in response to the fact that they could never gain any ground against Bitcoin. They kept going with a decentralized computer, world computer, able to like code is law. You're unable to stop any code from running because it's world computer and code is law. And oh yeah, unicorns and and like, I don't know, rainbow farting ice cream cones or some some such, I can't really remember. But then all, all of a sudden they figured out that they probably were on the wrong marketing track. And one day, literally one day, ETH is money happened as a narrative. Hopefully for them, they're hoping that it becomes a meme and ETH is not money. Nobody really knows what the hell ETH is, quite frankly. Nobody really knows what it is. I don't think Andreas Antonopoulos knows what this shit is. And if anybody would know what something is, it's probably Andreas, even though his shit coinery as of late has garnered him no friends. But in either event, <clears throat> the thing you need to remember here is that this is a narrative postulated by the guys over at ETH because they were never able to compete fairly with Bitcoin on their own accords. So they've adopted, uh, they've adopted Bitcoin's accords and it's not going to work. So moving on, actually not going to move on. What we're going to do is going to do some vitals. That's what we're going to do. All right, duders and do debts. We've got Bitcoin at $8,743. Uh, let's see where our high is. Our high is going to be over at BitAsset, it appears, at 8830 Our low is going to be over at HitBTC at 8735 358,000 transactions have occurred in the last 24 hours. 15,000 transactions are happening on average per hour. 1 million BTC have been sent in that last 24 hours with an average being sent per hour of 42,500 BTC. 2.86 BTC are being uh, traded as the average transaction value while the median transaction value is 0 0.037 BTC or about 325 bucks. Block times are extraordinarily low at eight minutes and 31 seconds. 0.15 BTC have been taken in fees on a per block basis and 24 and a half BTC have been taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We have 3.67% increase in the hash rate, bringing us up to 121 exahashes per second. And the last time nobody did dick on Bitcoin was sometime yesterday. No, sometime today. According to the GitHub last commit column on a BitInfo charts, somebody didn't do anything to Bitcoin today. Uh, Ethereum is at 224, Bcash at 318, BSV at 233, Litecoin at 60, Ethereum Classic at 7.97. Dogecoin's got a little bit of a bump, 0.0024. And at, woo, at 28,000 transactions over the last 24 hours, it's uh, well, it's not really close to any of the other chains, but as usual, it's wall walking all up and down Litecoin. Now, let's see what my node has to say about hash rate. My node is saying 128 exahashes per second. We've got 16 megabytes in the mempool representing 2,684 unconfirmed transactions. 
I have the last 10 blocks in front of me and all of them are full. I've got, I've had some news that some stale blocks have been mined as of late, like three in the last week. I'm not showing anything here, but then again, I'm only really tracking the last 10 blocks at a time. So there you go. Now I have kind of confirmed that one ML for lightning stats uh, is having some difficulty. So I'm not going to be giving you the usual stats today. Today I'm going to be leveraging off of Clark Moody Bitcoin, bitcoin.clarkmoody.com forward slash dashboard, bro. It's the dashboard. They've got, and they have, they always have way different number. Well, they have way different numbers for the total notes. Um, so bear with me. The lightning network, uh, stuff here is the total capacity is 877.31 BTC. That's what's in the network. That value is $7.65 million. So that's 7.6 million in liquidity in the network. The total number of nodes here is 6,500. The total number of channels is 36,078. The Tor capacity of Bitcoin is 352.43 BTC, and that represents about 40% of the total capacity of BTC in all of the network or the Lightning network. This is just the stuff that's in Tor. The Tor nodes is another 1,859 nodes. So again, if I had the other one, if I had like the 1ML up, it would be telling me a, a completely different number for total notes. All right, so keep that in mind as we, you know, as we progress. Is there anything else that I need? No, that's actually going to do it for your vital statistics. Welcome to Morning Roundup Part 2, brother. Bitcoin network sees third stale block in two weeks. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I forgot. I actually, I actually have this up. Okay. This is Bitcoinist uh, Christine Vasileva. She's writing on March the 3rd. So that would have been yesterday. In less than two weeks. Okay. It's two weeks. The Bitcoin network produced three blocks that did not propagate. The mining anomaly did not create double spins. Bitcoin is designed with the possibility to discover two blocks at the same time, though this is a relatively rare event. <clears throat> but in the last couple of weeks, stale blocks have occurred in rapid succession. <clears throat> Dang. The springtime uh, allergies just start starting to kick up, bro. Bitmex research counted three stale blocks in the last couple of weeks with another stale block in January. And then they give the tweet from Bitmex research. Stale blocks look worrying in that they may be suggestive of a chain split, but since only one block was produced, it was more likely an anomaly. The Bitcoin network protocol will start to propagate the block that was discovered slightly earlier. The latest stale block was discovered by Poulin one of the most influential pools that gained hash rate in the past year and discovers a significant part of blocks. Poolin manages to produce more than 16% of blocks. The valid block at height 619,970 was discovered by the OKX mining pool, which usually produces 9% of blocks. Currently, the Bitcoin network is still dominated by a handful of large pools, which collectively produce nearly 60% of the blocks. 
the incidence of stale blocks <coughs> happening within days of each other arrives at a time of heightened mining competition. Discovering a block knots may be a matter of luck, and with enough hashing power pointed at the network, it is possible that block nonces are discovered close to each other. A stale block could incidentally double spend in case of zero confirmation transactions, but this is an even less probable event. The last two or the two latest stale blocks that happened after February the 26th and coincided with a period of rapid mining growth, the Bitcoin hash rate reached peak levels above 136 quintillion hashes per second. That's 136 exa hashes per second. I don't know what these people's like fascination with quintillion is because I see it all the time, but it's, it's exa hashes. You can replace quintillion with exa and have 136 exa hashes. I'm not an editor, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The capability to create blocks may be an advantage to miners as they may retain some control on which transactions enter the block. But currently, miners manage to include most pending transactions into blocks minimizing the number of pending requests in the mempool. The question remains on what would happen to the bloated hash rate after the halving of the block reward. Some predictions include continued competition, while some of this SHA-256 hash rate may be directed to the Bitcoin Cash or BSV networks. Uh, man, could you imagine even a, a non-trivial amount of, of hash rate going from Bitcoin to BCH. Not, I, and it doesn't concern me because it would spin, it would spin their gears so fast. They'd be blocks would be flying and it would, re, uh, it would really jack up their, their entire schedule. I'm it's it. For those of you who are like, Oh, you, yay, we're going to get all this hash rate. Uh, no, you're not a probably not and B even if you did. Yeah. You're probably not going to want that. Just kind of saying BOE officials that crypto adoption may eliminate bank credit issuance. Yeah. First they laugh at you and then they curl up and start crying while they're sucking their thumb. John Cunliffe, the deputy governor for financial stability at the bank of England has warned that the increasing growth of the crypto economy may weaken or eliminate bank credit issuance. He said this while delivering a speech at the London School of Economics on February the 28th. This is Marinus Dinu writing for Crypto Press on the 2nd of March. Kuhn <clears throat> Cliff said the role of the BOE is to ensure that the UK's money works safely and reliably. The BOE official predicted that the integration of stablecoins on social media platforms such as the Libra project could lead to people investing much of their funds, which are currently held with banks, into stablecoins. I wouldn't do it, but whatever. The BOE official acknowledged the numerous benefits stablecoins offer, including largely reduced payment costs, especially cross-border payments. They also offer greater financial inclusion via easier and cheaper access to payment services for people without bank accounts. Cooncliffe, however, claims that virtual currencies pose critical questions for the UK government, regulators, and the Bank of England. He urged regulators and central banks, mommy, mommy, to, to prepare for the unique challenges associated with the emerging crypto industry before it becomes systematically important. He further warns that Facebook's large size will give its proposed Libra stablecoin 
Oh, wider adoption. <laughs> mommy! Central Bank Mommy, come save me. But how to stop the next quadriga? I don't know. Stop giving idiots your stuff. I, that would help. But apparently it's to make exchanges prove their reserves. So this is March the 3rd. This is Coindesk's uh, Nick Carter writing. Coindesk Omni... Oh, sorry. I did it again. They're putting their descriptions at the head of the article and it makes me start reading their the description of the author and that's not what you want. What differentiates Bitcoin from its analog cousin, gold? Bye, bye, bye! Uh, sorry, I had to. You might respond divisibility or portability. You would be correct, but what really differentiates it? The answer, of course, is auditability. Consider the set of things you can prove about a lump of gold. If you use it as a settlement medium with the help of an XRF spectrometer available for sale for $13,500 US, you can prove that this inbound fleck of gold is genuine. Now, what can I prove about your gold? Well, nothing. I have to take your word for it that it is in fact gold. This isn't an issue unless you're holding the gold on my behalf. Now, I have a problem. I've entrusted you with my gold. Perhaps you've issued me an IOU that represents a claim on that gold, but I have no ability to determine that you have the gold you claim to have on deposit. I cannot audit your gold from afar. Perhaps I choose to trust you, but if you don't go to the effort of re-verifying all the gold you receive, then you need to prove to me, your depositor, that all of your counterparties in the gold supply are honest. And they need to prove that their counterparties, miners, refiners, jewelers, recyclers, custodians, are also honest. The outcome is a fully permissioned supply chain in which a single body holds, an entity, holds each entity to account with a convoluted rule set. One such walled garden is governed by the London Bullion Market Association, which manages $400 billion worth of gold sitting in vaults in London. <clears throat> Because it's so costly to administer a gold supply chain link by link and ensure that not only is the gold, well, gold, but that it's gold stamped by the right people, LBMA gold rarely strays outside these con confines. And this is the best case scenario, believe it or not. The other outcome is that the government, or really a single government, holds everyone's gold and then refuses to give it back when the time comes. <laughs> So costly verification leads to concentration. The more expensive it is to verify the integrity of a monetary good, the more taking delivery of it is difficult for smaller holders and the more it lends itself towards capture. Quote, one potential solution is to demand that exchanges issue periodic proofs that they actually have dominion over assets owned owed to depositors, end quote. Bitcoin, on the other hand, <clears throat> How do you verify the validity of some inbound Bitcoin you are receiving? For the paranoid, run a full node. Oh, come on, Nick. That's not fair, dude. We're not paranoid. We're supporting the network because without the quote unquote paranoid, you have no network. Stop it. That makes me feel better. Using the beefiest providers, it'll set you back 150 bucks per month, or you can build your own with a $35 Raspberry Pi. What about verifying the integrity of all the Bitcoin? Ever mind. Your full node does that by default, simply by following consensus rules. For each block, it checks 
that there was a sufficient cost exerted to create those new Bitcoins and that they were mined according to the predefined schedule, 50 BTC per block for four years, then 25 and so on. To obtain a summary, run to the git txout set info, git transaction out set info is a long version of that RPC command on your full node. Now, what uh, now what about you providing to me that you truly own some Bitcoin that you claim you own? Thanks to public key cryptography, it's trivial. The most convenient way in Bitcoin is to use the SIG message RPC command present in all software like Bitcoin Core or Electrum. <clears throat> I provide you with a string of text and you pair it with your private key to create a proof that you own some given UTXOs. This is quite powerful. Trusting only cryptography, I know I can know for a fact that you indeed control a specific quantity of Bitcoin at a moment in time. Some Bitcoiners believe that Bitcoin's auditability advantages over gold will allow it to escape the dismal fate suffered by the shiny rock. President Nixon had an easy time voiding the gold standard in 1971 because most of the relevant gold was already held in the United States government's vaults. <laughs> that still makes me laugh. Bitcoin is held by millions of people, and I count myself among those who are optimistic that Bitcoin's properties as highly auditable collateral will yield a monetary base asset which is held mostly by end users rather than a <clears throat> tiny handful of intermediaries. Despite the ease of taking ownership of one's Bitcoins, the reality is that, by my count, at least 20% of outstanding supply is held by intermediaries. Although those in the Rothbardian school would disagree with me, I don't believe that fractional reserve banking is inherently fraudulent. The fraud occurs when exchanges represent themselves as fully reserved when they are not. In theory, Bitcoin's qualities lend themselves to mitigating this risk. Even if in a custodial setting, the auditable nature of Bitcoin means that savers can independently verify that the liabilities of depository institutions match their assets. The problem is that some of the most prominent Bitcoiners don't share my enthusiasm for the idea. Problematically, this group includes the CEOs of Bitcoin banks, today referred to as exchanges. <laughs> Gee, you think? Okay, I'm going to stop right there for just a second and go back to this thing where he says, reserve banking to him is not inherently fraudulent. I agree. However, there's a caveat here. Of course, fractional reserve banking is not inherently fraudulent. What is fraudulent is the allowance of that pathway altogether. Because you know that somebody is going to go down the fraudulent part of that path. They're going to forge, they're going to fork that path of fractional, the whole, the path here is fractional reserve Making that system available is opening a gate to a very small child bouncing a ball and saying, gee, little Timmy, go play out in the park. And la, 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 little Timmy and his freaking beanie and a little propeller spinning around. And all of a sudden, little Timmy decides, you know, I could totally jack these people out of their money, bro. And, and all of a sudden he ditches the beanie and he becomes the big bad boy that we all know as fractional reserve as we see it today where people are being fraudulent with it are misrepresenting their reserves. The fact that you allowed it in the first frickin' place, that's the fraud. Because you knew someone, little Timmy in this case, 
you knew little Timmy was going to go down the road to hell. Uh, There's just no excuse for fractional reserve. Yeah, sure, dude. It's not inherently fraudulent, but (laughs) it inherently offers people a choice. And if you know anything about the human condition, you know that some of these people are going to take a choice that is going to defraud other people. Just saying, bro, I'm, I'm seriously, I, I'm not passing judgment on anything here as much as the fact that when you allow systems and that system inherently allows fraudulent behavior, isn't it possible that we might actually say that it is indeed inherently fraudulent? I don't know. That's sort of a how many angels can stand on the head of a pen question, but let's continue. These Bitcoin banks are the prime beneficiaries of the existence of Bitcoin. They are the largest businesses in the industry. The public has an insatiable demand for intermediated Bitcoin and has paid dearly for that privilege. Exchanges store a wonderfully audible, auditable asset, but for the most part, they simply ask depositors to trust them. The list is long and painful. Mt. Gox, Quadriga, Fcoin, Cryptopia, Bitfinex, Cryptium, Bitcoinica. I don't even remember that one. Among many others, all have suffered major hacks or insolvencies. Exchanges simply have too lousy a track record to get a pass. Exchanges are meant, in theory, to distinguish operating capital from user deposits and to hold those deposits equivalent on a one-to-one basis to liabilities in practice, either through malice or incompetence, some exchanges never develop sufficiently strong controls, fail to mitigate key man risk, or simply lose track of their coins. Since redemptions rarely come all at once, these insolvencies can go undetected for years. Unknown to the unwitting buyer, Mt. Gox was most likely already insolvent when it was sold to Mark Carpellis in 2011, For sure, depositors can find some insurances in laws and regulation. If an exchange has a bit license or a license to operate limited purpose trust company in New York City, or sorry, in New York, it is likely subject to reasonable scrutiny over its deposit taking activity. Even better, registering as a Wyoming special purpose depository institution. The Wyoming law stipulates specific requirements for deposit taking crypto banks designed to give depositors confidence, although no institutions have received their charter just yet. Generally speaking, however, exchanges are not forthcoming with the details of the audits that they may undergo when they do exist. And many exchanges are lightly or entirely unregulated. Some of the deepest pools of liquidity in the crypto industry, Binance, BitMEX, Deribit, Bitfinex, among others, are not meaningfully regulated in any sense. New Bitcoiners should demand not more regulation, but rather seek to head off further regulatory power grabs by holding exchanges to a higher standard in the first damn place. Well, that's that's me, sorry. One potential solution is to demand that exchanges issue periodic proofs that they actually have dominion over assets owned by the depositors. These proofs of reserve, if done properly, leverage Bitcoin's neat cryptographic properties and give depositors reasonably sound assurances that the exchange is not misrepresenting their solvency. Such POR ceremonies purport to prove that deposit-taking institutions have sufficient BTC and reserve to satisfy all liabilities owed to depositors. After a brief period of enthusiasm for the public audits, in the wake of Mt. Gox in 2014, today only one exchange routinely carries out these attestations, the London-based 
Bitcoin floor. Yay, coin floor. I envision a robust periodic POR program not as a panacea, but as a complement to regulation in onshore exchanges and an inferior substitute offshore if some operations formerly reliant on contracts and trusts can be formalized and expressed as code we should embrace them now the set of engagements in which software and crypto or cryptography outperform the standard trust manufacturing processes is rather small but proving custody of a digital asset is one case where sign message is more convenient and perhaps cheaper cheaper than an auditor's report. While implementations vary, the process as it is currently carried out entails posting an anonymized list of user deposits as well as an attestation to BTC held in the vault. Proof of reserve and other solvency attestations are not without their drawbacks and exchanges have managed to trick assessors implementing the process in the past. But we shouldn't forget the broader objective here. If we are unable to take advantage of the innate cryptographic verifiability of Bitcoin, then we have scarcely innovated relative to gold. One wonders, what are we doing here again? Well, I can tell you that we're here to get rid of all this shit. And every single time that we see somebody screwing this up, we call them out. We've been doing that. And it works. After a while, you know what happens? They get so much shit that they decide to start their own shit coin. And once they do that, they've effectively color-coded themselves so that we can easily identify them in a population of the rest of us. I hate to be that way, but I'm tired of the scammers. And I don't have any sympathy at all for whatever untimely demise they might meet. And also, there was one. There was another company that was left out of this list. Although this was talking mostly about exchanges, but Nick, I was kind of hoping that he would uh, mention the company Ledin, L-E-D-N. Um, I was on Adam Meister's show with one of the guys from Ledin. I think it was, oh God, see, this is why you shouldn't trust me to do a damn thing because I can't remember nothing, man. No, it's one of the head dudes <clears throat> and he's a good guy. And they, and, and led, not only do they perform an audit, they, they, I mean, they make it possible where everybody can perform an audit. The way that they're set up enables the people who quote unquote deposit with Ledin because they, they, they make loans and whatnot, sort of like DeFi, I guess, but still they've made it as part of their system that they're going, that they're, well, they've made it as part of their system where at any, I can be in my underwear at 4.15 in the morning in like a hut on the beach in Bali or something like that. And I can decide, you know, I really need to check to make sure that they've never lied to me about my balance over there at Ledin. And then I get on my computer and I can go do that. My whole problem with all of this is that this works right up until the second that it doesn't work. I mean, the last thing that I really need is an immediate red flag as to when I got screwed because somebody decided to take all the Bitcoin, throw it into a, a, a cold wallet and bounce over to Australia or something like that. I don't know, wherever it is that you go um, after you've stolen all the money because an audit at that point, hey, I audited my account. I got nothing. There's nothing in there. I got robbed, bro. 
Okay. So, but the whole auditability thing, I mean, Nick makes a good point. Auditability is key and is going to continue to be key in the future for all of Bitcoin and all the industries that are want to be Bitcoin companies and they're, they'll never be because they're doing uh, shit coinery. But in either event, it's important to make sure that we, unlike all those that have come before us, understand that we're either going to allow auditability and not only are we going to allow auditability, we're going to blare the audit out of a megaphone every 10 minutes. We can do that shit right now. It just means somebody's got to step up to the plate and say, we're going to utilize what, and they, that's what Nick's saying here. You don't have to do anything. You have to build almost nothing to do audits. It's already part of the Bitcoin system. As we discover what's already fairly much in front of our face and has been unveiled to us for years, just what I'm getting at on that one is that just because we've lifted the veil on this doesn't mean that we can immediately identify what is right before us. I mean, we do it with people all the time, like a friend that you might have be, you know, count as a really good friend, you know, turned out to be like an even better friend later on because there was something about them that you never knew. You knew it, but you never put it together right? It's the same shit. Just because we understand that we can audit the entire Bitcoin blockchain from the very first Bitcoin ever minted all the way until now, doesn't mean that we fully get it. And if we can't get this, if it's taking us this long to figure out this stuff as a whole group of people, what else are we missing? What's the true nature of the difficulty adjustment? We think we know what it is, but do we? Do you really know? I don't. I'm pretty sure that I'm missing something that's staring me square in the face about just the difficulty adjustment. And then we've got the entire relationship between difficulty, hash rate, and a two-week window. Now we've got three entities in the mix. What kind of picture has that painted that I think is one thing, but somebody else goes, you're staring at that picture upside down, bro. And then I go, oh my God, I have been all this time. Think about all the things that you don't know about Bitcoin and realize how many more companies can be built on what's already there. Just when you thought it was all said and done, boom, it's not. Elon Musk references Dogecoin on Twitter yet again. Christina Vasileva writing for Bitcoin is sometime on when? Oh, March the 3rd. Yay, March the 3rd. Elon Musk is one true Dogecoin fan. After handing out praises on Twitter for the second time, Elon Musk, who turned out to be a sporadic, Though powerful endorsement for crypto once again boosted Doge. No wonder we got a bump with a meme-based tweet. And his tweet says, let's see, dogs rock. And it shows a dog in front of a cake with the candle, the birthday candle with the number three on it. It says, dog says, I have no concept of numbers. Oh, bad. This is a terrible tweet, Elon. You're better than this. This is the second veiled endorsement of Dogecoin after Elon Musk tweeted about his favorite coin in the summer of 2019. 
Doge is also known for not chasing rapid appreciation and its moon prices every anything above one penny. <laughs> Currently, Doge trades at $0.002 and takes the venerable position 33 based on market cap. There are already more than 123 billion Doge in circulation with more than 31,000 transactions per day. <laughs> Whoopty, I am so sorry, man. But hey, dude, live up here in spring and see if it doesn't happen to you too. Doge has been a stable presence in the world of crypto. Though the meme-based character of the coin curbed adoption, Doge was also displaced as the base pair coin by the arrival of stable coins and is not used as often to arbitrage trades and move coins between exchanges, which makes it a perfect opportunity for people to go really dark. <laughs> the, sorry, that's me. Uh, the entire crypto community was enthusiastic about the endorsement, possibly expecting Doge price action, for now, <clears throat> it is early to say if Doge would pull the same stunt as Tesla stock. <laughs> Doge may be indeed primed for a run as its trading activity is near a record after reawakening in 2020. Doge trading for the past month is consistently above or active with volumes above $150 million per day. So far, Doge has not repeated its record days from 2017, but the coin has also shown its metal in going vertical against Bitcoin. Doge has not seen a pump for a while, and currently most of its volumes are concentrating on the B BKEX exchange. The market for Doge also gets a boost from a 48% share of Tether trading, a shift away from a scenario where Doge BTC was the most active pairing. Those conditions may work toward decoupling Doge prices and entering a new price discovery stage. Doge has also signaled improved altcoin sentiment, possibly signaling a new altcoin season. <laughs> Yay! Currently at a rather low price, Doge can be source uh, a source of rapid appreciation with the potential to add Satoshis quickly. New Doge are minted all the time in connection to Litecoin coin creation. There is no Doge scarcity, and the coin also shows an uneven distribution of wealth, with nearly 20% of coins concentrated in the top five wallets. It is also the source of so many lovely memes over the years. This is one of the reasons why I love Doge. The other reason that I love Doge is that it's the one shit coin. It's the one shitcoin that I can be a shitcoiner about and nobody in Bitcoin hates me for it because Doge is not dangerous. It's not dangerous at all. It's a, it's the crappiest, it's one of the crappy crap coins, but it has a history of fun. It never, you know, it never had a community that said that really got together in any sensible way to point their fingers at Bitcoin saying Doge is better than you. And if it happened, I either I didn't see it or it happened before I got into Bitcoin. But it, at class of 2015, I probably would have seen it. So in my estimation, out of all of the, the shit coinery that you can deal in, if you gotta go with Doge because it's fun and it poses no threat to anything. If anything, the only threat it poses is to itself. I, it just, but the Doge is so cute. I can't help it, man. I can't. Blockchain to bring transparency to uranium markets. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. No shit, they don't. Look, when it's bananas on the blockchain, 
or like, I don't know, like Nike tennis shoes on the blockchain. It's funny, but dude, this is, this is now that has graduated from the realm of funny to fucking stupid. I'm sorry, but it has major uranium producer, uranium one. It distributed ledger technology startup insular have teamed up to explore blockchain's capabilities in uranium and energy trading. The partnership will focus on the improvement of the production and distribution of uranium as multi-party deals in the industry are still conducted using paper and pencil with non-standard contracts that cross borders and require tedious legal review. Oh, God forbid that uranium should be under some kind of review. Honestly, I, you know, any libertarian out there that's about to lose their mind on that, Get a grip, dude. It's uranium. Come on. <laughs> Both uranium and uranium one and Insular believe that the integration of blockchain into uranium producers' internal processes could make uranium supply chains more transparent. Uranium one expects the blockchain will enhance security, compliance, and reliability of sector. And before I get into the rest of it, there's something about uranium one. Uranium one. Wasn't there something about the Clinton's about uranium one. Somebody go look into that. Just, just, you know, Hey, if I don't do a little tinfoil hattery, it's not fun, but yeah, the Clintons were involved. Uh, just go look at it. It's, it's just yet another part of the circus that is world politics. But Insular told Cointelegraph that the parties have been discussing a pilot program for the project and hope to launch the pilot later this year, although it may take more <clears throat> than a year for the full launch of the project. God. Apart from that, Insular is going to further research blockchain applications in non-exchange traded commodities markets such as iron ore. The company projects that its DLT-based platform could cut <laughs> the over-the-counter deal cycle from months to weeks and reduce transaction costs by 40% or billions of dollars per year. Global OTC markets trading volume is ostensibly more than $380 billion per year, and Insular estimates that up to 3% of that is currently being spent on overhead and other transaction-related costs. Elaborating further on the matter, Insular said, quote, in trading of over-the-counter commodities such as uranium, the contracts and negotiating process is extremely complex, involving at least six parties. The miner, the converter, the power generation customer, and the respective banks. That's four. That's that, that's four parties. Four, not six. This means considerable resources to negotiate and sign contracts. Insular estimates that it could cost up to $50,000 per deal, end quote. By implementing blockchain in the OTC commodity markets, Insular aims to resolve two major problems the sector faces. The first is the transactions are slow and costly and involve multiple participants, all poor babies, which ostensibly lead to scattered communication and multiple reconciliations among involved parties. That's a lot of crying right there. The second problem lies in the lack of transparent pricing mechanisms as most pricing is quoted by third-party agencies. Quote, there is no assurance in the accuracy and completeness of the input data. Sell, sell, sell. In fact, it is a black box in most markets. Sell, sell, sell. The sector badly needs a system that is able to collect transaction data from all participants and provide spot and forecast prices without exposing the details of individual transactions. 
Insular outlined the need for parties to have a decentralized system where no single party exercises control, adding, quote, in the proposed system, parties interact with the platform to transact securely and seamlessly. Data from the trades is used to set a transparent spot market price and reliable forecasts without revealing the exact figures and sums of particular transactions. Smart contracts are applied to the data in the distributed ledger, improving automation of the deal signing process and guaranteeing that the deal follows the pre-agreed process, end quote. Other industry players have also explored blockchain's capabilities to cut third parties and save both money and time on deals in the mineral trading sector. A recent partnership between IBM and metals and mining industry-focused blockchain firm MineHub Technologies will develop a blockchain-based solution to streamline supply chain management in the mining and metals industry by digitizing the supply chain through the creation of a ledger shared between permissioned participants both companies can ensure an aggregated real-time view of transactions and <laughs> sorry and data flow throughout the supply chain blockchain-based digital trading platform tradewind markets also launched a digital tool that provides supply chain proven- provenance to buyers and sellers of precious metals last November. So yeah, uranium on the blockchain. Bad idea. The, 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 there was some stuff in there about market pricing that actually makes a whole shit ton of sense, but that can probably be done the way it's always been done because uranium is probably something now. Okay. Uranium is something that we, that we should definitely be able to audit the whole supply. That's never going to happen because all, all the uranium that's already traded and all the deals. So you can only hope to audit the supply of uranium from the time that a system like this would be put into place. I just don't trust them because again, like bananas on the blockchain, you have to trust that somebody entered in the data into the just quote unquote distributed ledger. How's that person? Like what if that person is told uh, with a gun pointed at his family's head to enter in one-tenth the amount in a transaction because they want to steal the other other amount because, you know, terrorism, because it's always about terrorists. Or maybe they want to power an offline power plant because they're tired of, I don't know, let's let's talk about uh, il- the Illuminati and, and say that they want their own power plant because they're tired of cartels dictating what their energy prices are. Is that a terrorist? No. Is it possible? No, that's really far-fetched, but you get my drift here. You have to trust that these things are going to get into said distributed ledger. And then you got to worry about what's going to happen on the distributed ledger. Because since there's no token of value, I have zero interest in mining that chain. And without my mining capability for that chain, that chain goes unsecured. And then we're all the way back to trust. I don't need a distributed ledger for that. You know what I need for that? A bank. That's what I need for that. Like your good old-fashioned Wells Fargo. I mean, it's going to get corrupted anyway. You might as well start it off right, right out of the gate. Right? Right. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Daily Trainwreck is brought to you by Dennis Parker. He is at X-E-N-T-A-G-Z on Twitter. And no, he himself is not the Daily Trainwreck. Uh, uh, 
Dennis is cool, man. Uh, he doesn't say stupid things. And neither is uh, the person he's responding to in this particular tweet, which is John Carvalho, also known as Bitcoin Error Log on Twitter. And he is not the train wreck. But together, they bring to you today's daily train wreck. Bitcoin Error Log uh, has uh, written a tweet that says, Fallen heroes, go. Dennis responds with Trace Mayer, Gavin Andreessen, and Roger Ver. It's just a train wreck all around. And why? Well, because Trace Mayer, his name is right alongside Gavin Andreessen and Roger Ver. The train wreck is is the fact that Trace Mayer, by espousing uh, a shitcoin, Mimblewimble coin to be exact, and the the way that that he started dropping this by putting somebody somebody made it um, described it best. The little piece of paper that was uh, brought us brought to the atten- brought us all to attention of this this thing that was going on over at Tone Vay's off an unconfiscatable conference. Um, this we were made, you know we were thinking it was like like it was like a fortune cookie. Um, I likened it to the bad Mandarin transcription on the or a, a translation of chopstick usage on the back of paper chopsticks uh, at your favorite Chinese place. But somebody said it best. He shoved grubby little pieces of paper into people's pockets. Grubby little pieces of paper is probably the best description for what I saw. <clears throat> Describing Mimblewimble coin as good money and will 100x Bitcoin. I uh, just, it was terrible. And for 10 years, this guy's been, you know, Trace Mayer's been at it, been a very, very, very well respected member of the community who people reached out to or looked up to, if not in hero status, because there shouldn't be heroes, but at least for like teacher, you know, teacher status, you know, and don't give me the whole teachers are heroes because unless you run into a burning building and pull out like puppies and children and shit, you ain't no hero. Sorry. I'm not a hero because I haven't run into a burning building or gone off to war and saved my entire platoon, anything like that. So no, I'm sorry. Unless your teacher has saved your life physically by pulling you out of a burning school, not a hero. But I still like teachers because they're the people that keep us, that can, that have the best potential for keeping us out of trouble. And Trace Mayer was one of those teachers. Was, as in past tense. Nobody can trust him anymore. And now his name resides in the smoldering pile that's over there in the corner. That's going to do it for your daily train wreck. Let's go ahead and do the joke. Because again, after something like that, we need a joke. And this, this as usual, comes from dad says jokes. <clears throat> let me get all, let me get all prepped up here. Um, yeah. Okay. I think I'm thinking, am I good? Am I good y'all? Okay. I'm, I'm good. Uh, dad says jokes three days ago says, I'm developing a new fragrance for introverts. It's called Leave Me the Fuck Alone. And that's one of the one of the jokes that is best is best read 
uh, for yourself and not have it read to you because the way it's spelled is leave me the F-U-H space cologne, C-O-L-O-G-N-E. See the way that works? That's why, again, this is one of the hallmarks of these dad jokes or terrible jokes or horrible jokes or bad jokes or whatever it is that you want to call them. And one of the reasons why I love them so much is that they're, they're a little bit more slippery than, you know, than you, you kind of think of when you first see a, a terrible joke. There's a lot of nuance to these things. And because of the nuance, in my opinion, that's, that's the reason they work so well. And that's why nobody really, it's like, if I tell somebody a bad joke, they're never going to punch me. Unlike this one time. No, it wasn't me that got punched. <clears throat> this is the joke. These, I'm, I'm going to describe to you a joke that you never want to hear. And if you're at a party and somebody starts doing this crap to you, you will know, you will know literally that I'm for my life. Because if you will get caught up in a 15 minute joke, this dude, I'm sitting at a party. <clears throat> we're out in the backyard drinking beer, getting hammered. And all of a sudden <clears throat> this guy, and I can't even remember his name. He just says, Oh, I got, I got one for you. Cause we're, we're telling jokes. He's like, I got one for you. And he starts telling me about clown school and that there's this guy and he's got it. He's going to clown school and I'm going to stop right there because he went on with these inane descriptions of clown school. And this guy was studying to be an assassin and he went to clown school and he comes up and eventually and when I mean 15 minutes, guys, I'm not exaggerating. It's not like he told the joke in one minute. The joke is designed to go on and on and on and on. Because the punchline is, is that you were so dumb that you got suckered into listening to a joke that went on for 15 minutes with zero punchline. That's the joke. You are the joke. I don't appreciate that. I don't appreciate it because it, it totally, it totally disrespects your, your audience, your, your, your listener. When you're telling somebody a joke, they expect a punchline. And if it's not funny, it should at least make them groan. Okay. That's one of the reasons why I like bad jokes. They're short and they at least elicit a response. Okay. So that's, that's why I do all that. Okay. So we're, that's it for the terrible joke corner. That's it for smoldering pile. Um, I, again, my apologies, my deepest apologies for not being able to be with you yesterday. I feel really bad about it, but it was one of those things where it's like by the time, because it was a 1045 doctor's appointment that I had to take my wife to, right? And I was already telling you this morning about how it took an hour to just get out of chairs. And then it took even more time while we were in the doctor's office and it blah, blah, blah. And then we had lunch. And by the time I even got home, God, it was like two, two o'clock or something like that. And I have to, you know, <clears throat> I like going and picking up my kids from school at like, you know, three o'clock or whatever. So it was like the worst of split shifts that you could ever have. Right. So it was like, you know, it just wouldn't make sense to do it. So anyway, yesterday's show is here for you today. And tomorrow should be, tomorrow should be cool. So we don't have any worries about that. Um, 
Bitcoiners best. That Bitcoiners best. Is that doc? Are we doing dot com? I'm not part. I'm part of it, but only insofar that I'm part of their. Uh, oh God, not Telegram. Was it Keybase? They've set up a Keybase group, and I won't tell anybody anything about the Keybase group unless somebody over at Bitcoin Best says. Yes, please dump the address and then I'll let you guys know where it is and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's an outfit by uh, uh, like Brady and some other other folks. Pablo is part of it. Um, and they're the ones, there's four guys that are really setting it up and everybody else that's part of it is sort of like, we're just trying to figure out, I, I, or I am trying to figure out what, what it all is. But Bitcoiners Best is some place that you can go, that you can find, like in in the opinion of of some, the best solid Bitcoin content, whether it's podcasts, articles, maybe YouTube channels, stuff like that. And I'm just gonna, I'm going to see if I can't. Yeah, Bitcoiners Best, and that is going. Oh, that's going to be Bitcoiners dot best. See, I'm old school insofar that, uh, for the internet insofar that I remember the days before the internet, most, for most of the time of my time in getting into the internet, it was always.com. So I'm, it's like, you can't, it's sort of like an old dog. You throw a bone and all of a sudden the dog runs in the same direction and same thing. But I'm looking at it right now. This is bitcoiners.best. And this week, we have the chain code podcast is number one uh, in the thing. Anyway, so it's it's a way to curate the very best Bitcoin content that and very best is relative. It's subjective. I get it. I get it. But one of the things that I like about Bitcoiners best is that I agree with almost everything that I see there insofar as, yes, this is not a shit coiner that is pretending to be a Bitcoiner so that they can wipe the stain of, of shit coinery off of them because they will never get it off of them. It's a way to look at and, and, and be feel fairly secure that if you want to go learn about Bitcoin because you're tired of Ethereum, you're not going to hear about Ethereum in this unless we're blasting it, okay? <laughs> so, but we've got Chaincone Labs up there. We've got the uh, St. Bitcoin Pleb Talk podcast is up there. Uh, we've got, that's this, uh, this week. Let's see what all time says. The website allows, oh, Guy Swan is holding the number one spot with 142 votes. Woohoo! And uh, Citizen Bitcoin is right behind. That's Brady's outfit. And that makes sense because Brady is part of Bitcoiners Best. He's one of the guys that started it. And then in the third spot is Tales from the Crypt, a Bitcoin podcast. Yeah. And, and then Stephen Levera. And I've probably gotten bumped off the list. I was... Yeah, I'm, I'm like way, I'm way down here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in, I'm sitting with 17 votes. <laughs> nice, though. I'm appreciative, but I'm way down the list, bro, uh, for Bitcoin and. But I'm on there. I got Why Buy Bitcoin from Andy Edstrom is a book that's on here. Bitcoin Money: The Tale of Bitville Discovering Good Money by the Good Rabbi is on here. The Little Bitcoin Book. So books and articles and and all kinds of stuff. If you want to go to the place that you can be assured that you're not going to be filled full of crap by somebody who wants to lighten the load of your wallet, go to bitcoiners.best. 
because chances are good the resources that are represented there will lead you down the right path. And hopefully by the end of that path, you'll be going, oh shit, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Hey, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.